The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello. I'm Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Thanks for joining me. You can go to the Good Grief host page at Voice America to find links to my Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Pinterest. And you can also listen to every Good Grief show we've recorded by going to the archives. Today, I'm welcoming Sybil Lockhart. Sybil is a former lab scientist and teacher, current science writer and mother, compulsive journal writer, and inchoate novelist. She was trained in psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, in science and education at San Francisco State University, and in cell and molecular neuroscience at Brandeis University, where she received her Ph.D. in 1994. Her teaching experience includes English and French at Maybeck High, biology and physiology at Brandeis, neurosciences at UC Berkeley, expository essays at Classroom Matters, and English at Bentley School. Her writing has appeared in anthologies, scientific journals, parenting magazines, and a children's magazine. Sybil is also one of the creators of Literary Mama magazine, where she wrote her column, Mama in the Middle. Her book, Mother in the Middle, was developed from that column and published by Touchtone Simon Schuster in 2009. Welcome, Sybil. Thank you. I enjoyed your book so much. And one thing I particularly loved is how you blended your scientific knowledge so effectively with what it's like to take care of kids and aging parents losing their memory, and especially what it's like to do both at the same time. Uh, it, it, the the blend of all those you really brought the experience alive for me, and especially with the science part, which I'm not that science scientifically oriented, but I it really came alive for me in your book. Oh well, thank you. Um, recently, I feel like I'm not that scientifically oriented either. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while since I've been in a lab, but um, yeah, I tried to make it accessible. I, I'm sure it's still part of your. Your background, I guess, uh, the the things in the in the wings. Um, it, I, it was also it was also kind of relieving that someone trained as you are also kind of missed the signs of Alzheimer's. Right uh, at first, can you talk about that a little bit? Because I thought that was very stunning that even someone trained in how brains work and with a special amount of knowledge as a as a daughter, would miss it. Right. Well, there's, an, there's just such a phenomenal um, amount of denial involved when 
someone you love so deeply begins to slowly slip away. Um, and yes, I knew a lot about the, the neuroscience of dementia, and of course I learned more in this process. But, you know, uh, well, it, there, it was complicated. One, I, I had denial because I love my mom so much, mm-hmm. and I didn't want to see it. And two, there was a complication that she was um, a heavy drinker, and we were living apart from each other on opposite sides of the um, nation. I was on the East Coast at grad school, and she was in the, on the West Coast. When she started to show the signs, so it, I, I confused the signs um, of dementia with possibly she, her drinking was ramping up, or maybe she was depressed. It was harder to sort out than if maybe if I'd been there. And looking back, do you think that was sort outable, or did things just have to develop to the point where you could see clearly what thing was going on? That's a good question. I think it depends on how much you focus on it. So I was very busy and on the other coast, so I wasn't as focused on it as I might have been if I had been less busy and living next door to her. Um, yeah, but it, was it sort out of all, or, or did it have to progress for us to know? And yes, it did have to progress to the point where it was undeniable before I would accept it emotionally. Um, you know, you have to do this flip from wanting things to stay the, they, the way they were, wanting to mm. control it somehow, to, um, you know, if, if you're a loving person and you love this person who has the problem, to needing to take care of them. And that, that's, that was, I think, the determining factor for me in accepting what was going on is that, in fact, she needed help. So then I flipped into caretaking mode and out and of... It became undeniable mode. on that level because she, whatever the reason, it was clear she needed you to, to be in a different role. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. That brings up the, the, um, the passage... We're going to have you read in this in this segment, uh, the one that starts as a mother. Sure. I think it would be a good moment for that, especially so listeners can hear hear you a little bit in in terms of how you wrote about it. Right. I think this kind of encapsulates the the shape of the book as well. So here we go. As a mother to a toddler and a kindergartner, I'm so used to being able to fix things to nourish. I kiss the boo-boos. I serve the food. I get up to comfort them when they cry in the night. And I see them heal, learn, and grow. They rise up into the light, gathering knowledge and developing insight. As they play and think and create, becoming clearer and brighter, I can almost see the myriad intricate synaptic connections being sculpted and refined within them. Meanwhile, Ma seems to wilt and fade as sticky protein oozes into her synapses and the fibers that structure her neurons begin to crimp and tangle. The girl's development puts Ma's dementia in dramatic relief. I think I'm less tolerant of her mental deceleration because I'm simultaneously witness to the tornado of their intellectual development and because I get to participate in their progress. No matter how much I give to Ma, she only becomes smaller. Ever so slowly, she loses comprehension of the world, and as she does, she loses pieces of the person she once was to me. 
that is how it works. That is how she incites my empathy and my rage in equal parts. I should be able to fix it. I can't. Mm. I, I, that, there are a couple of words that just so blast out at me. Tornado of development <laughs> is one, and the other is empathy and rage. That, uh, you know, I feel when someone's declining like that, there are both those experiences, aren't there? Exactly. Where you're sort of railing against what's happening and so deeply caring. Right. It's very frustrating and at the same moment it's very touching. Mhm. Mhm. Absolutely. I I feel like I got to know your 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 ma a little bit reading the book pre-Alzheimer's in yeah. reflection because you'd talk about what she was losing. And that yeah. told me a lot about what she had. Right. Um one thing I I got the feeling she had was a really good brain. Right. To start yeah. out with, you know, uh, that she was very smart and uh, thoughtful and engaged. And am I getting it right here? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, In a very kind of quiet um, and sort of unconfrontational way, uh, generally. Like, she was a very sweet, soft-spoken person, but very, she was a super-duper reader. Every Christmas, I would come home, and she would hand me a stack of the best books. I could always rely on her to hand me the best books to read over Christmas vacation. Oh, what a um, great gift. <laughs> and then she was, she was this very unassuming, you know, a school teacher, very sweet with kids. But then when something was important to her, she would stand up for it. You know, if it was defending her kids or, <clears throat> or instigating a um, teacher's strike so that women could wear pantsuits instead of dresses to work or... Going to the peace marches, she if something if it came down to something she really cared about, then her voice became very loud, uh, very yeah strong. Do you say. think that your your sense of her is a I guess I want to say an intellectual person, someone who read, someone who taught, someone who used her mind quite mm-hmm. a bit? Did that did that make her decline any harder for you? Do you think? You may not be able to know that, but um, you know she was a, she wasn't someone who who um, that wasn't her central piece. Um, uh-huh. You know she she didn't hang everything on her intellect the way some people do. She didn't. Yes. She, uh, matters of the heart were more important to her. So what what really got to me more than the intellectual piece was. Um, the connecting to people part. So, you know, the, the the business of how connected she could or could not be to my children or to me or to my husband at the time. Um, you know, seeing seeing the way it affected her relationships to um, the world. Uh, not not so on, much on the intellectual plane. Yeah, that's interesting too because that makes me think that memory plays a very, very big part in relationship. Yeah. Uh, does, is that scientific? <laughs> is you that know? scientific? I, don't, <laughs> I never really thought about that. I'm sure it, I'm, I'm, I don't know about scientific, but it, it absolutely has to play a role, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> I never really thought about it. But um, on, the, on the subject of memory, it's funny. That you, you're asking me about looking back at, my, at who my mother was. I did flashbacks in the book, too you know, who she had been to me so that we could see that. 
Um, and in the process of researching the book, part of the research I had to do was to go back into my own journals, which I've kept since I was 13 years old. So I have, and I have, I have, I just reached a hundred blank books that I have filled mm. um, with my writing since then. So I had a lot of documentation of what had gone on, but I hadn't really looked at them in years and years and years. So I went back to look, when did this happen? You know, what was this like from my, not my early childhood, but from my, you know, growing up years. And one thing that I found out was that the stories I had always told were completely wrong. What actually (laughs) happened, which I documented at the time, often pretty significantly differed with the story I'd been telling everybody since. Um, So I discovered that my memory, even, you know, fully functional memory, is so completely flawed. So that was an interesting little tidbit that came out of it. There's a lot going on in my field in psychology about that, that Mm -hmm. uh, memory is not a, a fixed experience that it changes as you change and as you look at things differently. Right, absolutely. Um, it's labile. It's, it's plastic. And, it, and, it, and why shouldn't it be, given that we are made out of molecules that are all bouncing around all the time and exchanging places with one another? <laughs> yes, and, and in terms of the, the idea of change that we just keep, we do keep changing, why wouldn't our picture of things change? Right. Uh, based on based on what develops in us, or doesn't, I guess. <laughs> uh-huh, right. Yeah. You know, anyone who's either parented young kids or taken care of ailing parents knows that either one is overwhelming. You were doing both. But I noticed in the book that over time, you and your husband, and not to mention the rest of the world, sometimes lost track of how hard it was. Like the people who, um, when you decided um, not to uh, do the teaching job anymore and just to to lecture some, would talk about you joining the garden club. And um, how do you think that lack of understanding affected you? That kind of caregiver isolation, I guess I'd call it. Yeah, I think I think that's a very stressful um, force that. Um, it's kind of an unavoidable thing because people outside of the situation cannot see it for what it is. It's impossible. It looks like you're just staying home doing nothing. You know, what are you Mm -hmm. doing? You're driving people around. You're dropping them off. You're shopping. That sounds so relaxing and lovely to someone who's working full-time. Right now, I'm working full-time as a technical writer and... It's a stressful job, and I and I I even do this. I I look at the uh, you know the stay at home parents, and I and I think, oh, that was the life. Huh. Even though I know better, it was very stressful. It was very demanding. It was physically exhausting, and to be in the middle, you know, with the with the young and the old and all their various needs, it is more than a full time job. But even then, it's something. I don't know, maybe it's just the grass is greener kind of phenomenon, but it's hard to maintain awareness that that's um, a very big job. <laughs> and it is. Yes. It is. 
stressful. Well, and and maybe the most difficult is that um, you yourself, I'm talking about myself, you, lots of caregivers I've spoken with, you lose track of it too, how hard it is. Yeah, and you should be doing better. Why can't I get more done? Right, right. Why do I feel so overwhelmed? Uh, Because we adapt, don't we, to to whatever it is we're doing. Right, and we keep adding adding in more wherever we can. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it seemed as if you were able to kind of bring yourself back to, no, this is actually really hard. Mm-hmm. Was that just the, the overlay of writing the book later, or were you able to keep some of that at the time? Well, I think at the time, you know, I, I did this thing that I think a lot of... Um, Moms do when they're home with kids. All of a sudden they realize, yes, this is very fulfilling, and I love my children, and in my case, and my mother, but it's not intellectually quite enriching enough. And so Mm. there has to be something else. And in my case, I started writing. Um, For the first time, I started writing with the aim of sharing it with other people. There was something about the experience of caregiving that made me want to share it. It made me want to reach out to the world as opposed to writing my journal and hiding it under my bed, which is what I've done all my life. Mm. And so I joined a writing group, and there I found some of the most supportive women that I've ever met. Um, these are my, you know, my, my writing sisters now, um, and we were all neophytes at the time. We were all, we were all home with little children and we would sit in a circle with the babies in the middle and critique each other's writing. Um, and uh, that was so fulfilling, and so and it, it generated such an, a strong support. None of them were going through exactly what I was going through. And people were advising me, go join a caregiver's group. But in this writing group, I really got what I needed. I got these amazing people to support me um, going through and they've been there still with me all of, all of those women are part of my life today boy that really I can imagine that circle uh, because you didn't have to leave anything behind right. uh, because if you're writing about your experience it includes all your experience exactly. whereas if you're in a caregiver's group it's going to focus more on that part if you're in a parenting group it's going to focus more on that part so that must have been such a uh, drink of water in the desert in a way right and it started out as writing about being mothers it branched into many things and actually mm-hmm. uh, I think all of those people have become published authors at this point many Amazing. of us have published books um that was the group that started LiteraryMama.com, which is still going. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, yeah, it was having those babies in the middle, and we hired someone to be in charge of the babies. We hired... A, like, now, that's a brilliant stroke. And she would <laughs> run around as they got to be toddlers, because they started to grow, you know, she would run chasing after them, and, you know, she'd bring one back into the circle to nurse, or to mm-hmm. ha- and the kids mm-hmm. would have a snack in the middle eventually. And eventually... Those kids grew up and went to school, and we're still meeting in our circle. No, yeah. It's time for a break, Sybil. Okay. Um, Listeners, you can go to my host page during the break, sign up for my newsletter, 
were, uh, find out about my work as a grief counselor and to learn more about Sybil, go to SybilLockhart.com. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN. The Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Real Life Solutions. Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is Cheryl Jones, the host of Good Grief. You can go to my website or host page where you'll find links to all my social media and ways to contact and connect with me. Today I'm here with Sybil Lockhart, whose book Mother in the Middle chronicles the years she spent caring for her young children and being the primary caregiver for her mother, who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. One thing that particularly affects me when I think about an Alzheimer's diagnosis is that usually people, when they're diagnosed still have the capacity to feel the loss of it, uh, the loss of it, you know, to know what's coming still. Uh, was that true with your mother by the time she was diagnosed? Oh, absolutely. She, and she, she resisted it pretty fiercely. She, she was sort of of the mind of, I don't know what you're talking about. This, this isn't anything. You know? uh-huh. Well, maybe that was a little adaptive. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Do you think because uh, she could maintain the illusion for a while that everything was okay? Yeah, I mean, I think it was, I don't think it was a game. I think she truly maintained that illusion that she really mm-hmm. didn't see that anything was happening. Um, and eventually, 
she accepted that other people knew better um, and that probably something was happening, but she didn't feel it happening. She didn't, she didn't um, see any of the trouble she was having as trouble related to memory or mind. Kind what, of, did, what did she imagine that it was? I think it was just life being difficult. You know, <laughs> uh, uh-huh. just this darn stuff is happening kind of thing. Right, huh? right. Yeah. And, you know, she coped. She was always good at coping. She, she was the person who did everything, who managed everything, the primary breadwinner in the family and, you know, one who made all the meals and carted us around wherever we needed to go. So, you know, when these things started happening, she coped. She, she wrote herself many, many little notes on sticky paper, you know, reminding her to take her medicine and to um, take her bath and to go to the doctor and to call Sybil and, um, you know, and you, you'd walk into her dining room and there were just, there were just these avalanches of little sticky notes, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and that maybe is... Um, you know, I know regular aging involves some um, tricky memory issues. I, yeah. I have some. I'm 61. <laughs> you know, and perhaps it's hard to get that that's not what's happening. Well, yeah. Because I, everybody starts writing themselves a little few, you know, more notes. and Right. Uh, <laughs> right. I'm a list keeper. I have to have a list or I'll forget all the items. And part of that is that I have a very busy life and a very busy job. But I wonder, you know, and I wonder when my kids say, oh, no, it didn't happen that way, Mom. It happened this way. I wonder, are they being revisionist or did I actually forget? You know, and, I, and it's, the, it's the demise of the caregiver for someone with Alzheimer's that later you begin, you, you worry, or during the time, um, you start to worry that you're losing your mind as well, um, that you'll get it. It's genetic. Right, partially. Right, right. So I'm constantly questioning myself: Is that normal, or is that you know is that different from it was last year? <laughs> and I think that's interesting because you know some some things it would make an absolutely tremendous, profound difference to know one way or the other. Right. But I'm not sure whether the difference is profound knowing extremely early with Alzheimer's. What do you right. think about that? <laughs> Because there's no cure, do you really want to know? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was wondering, but um, I didn't, you know, since it's it's not my experience exactly, I wondered what you thought about that. Yeah, Would you re- there's, there are two sides to it. One is, I don't want to know. I want to just be completely oblivious and live my life and not have to think about those things. I have a friend who's dying of cancer, and she always says, um, if I had one thing to do over, I... One thing, and only one, it would be I would not worry as much in my life. And so I always think about that. Like, I don't want to have to worry, so drop it. Don't think about it. But then the flip side is um, taking care of the people around you. If you have an early diagnosis, you might be able to enlist uh, your resources such that they don't have to take care of you later. You know, get, get long-term care insurance. Um, uh, set up some kind of a plan so that they don't have to make decisions for you, so that you've already laid it out for them, this is how I want it to go. Uh, and that might 
be really helpful to them. So that's sort of uh, what I hear there is the difference between worry, mm-hmm. which hardly, honestly, it's not an easy way to go towards action for most people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> worry is worry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and being mindful. Right, planning. Uh, pl- you know, kind of being realistic. Right. Uh, so that's the kind of creative tension you're talking about is kind of how do you be realistic and of course perhaps it's helpful for all of us to look ahead in that way right uh and kind of think about how we want things to be if we can't take care of ourselves yes but for you one thing about your your book is uh the the experience you had is so vivid uh in the book, you know, I um, I felt like I was there, and you live with that experience inside of you. Right. So it puts it in a different category in a way. Right, and it was my mother. So I look like her, I sound like her, I have so much of her in me. Um, so I can vividly imagine myself, you know, in, in that position, starting to be worried and forgetful and and getting lost and having um, you know lapses where I get my my emotions are out of control you know all of that I can so imagine myself just like that that so, that is the perfect moment for the part of your your of your book about Zoe and the book would you share that sure yeah so so this was a um, a scene where my mom was reading to Zoe on the couch, and Zoe was bouncing all around being who, who is your older daughter? Yeah, that- and at the time, she was, I think, two years old. She was a toddler. And um, my mom was suffering from these inhibitions. Um, it, it's, a, it's a phenomenon with, with Alzheimer's where you get disinhibited, um, meaning you don't have the normal inhibitions that socially acceptable ones, and something goes off the rails. So suddenly, Ma pulled her arm back and threw the book to the hard floor hard. You're ruining the story. Zoe stopped bouncing, surprised, eyes wide and indignant. I am not. I felt my face go hot. Ma threw a book. Ever since her explosion at Saul's, I had been watching Ma and wondering what I would do if Zoe found herself on the receiving end of her unchecked anger. Here we go, I thought. You are too, Ma was insisting. And not. God damn it, I'm not reading to you anymore. I don't care, and no throwing books. As Zoe stomped angrily away, my heart was racing, but just as quickly it was sinking. In the wake of her swearing and her anger, my vision of Ma as a patient, wise old grandma for my Zoe, was fading fast. Zoe had just learned that Ma could not be the grown-up with her. She was quoting Ma the rules. I was afraid she'd begin to see Ma as weak and inconsistent, that she would begin to distrust her, that they would never grow close. I was afraid that it was too late for them to really know each other. Now I stood between them, uncertain what to do. I could enter the living room, pick up the rumpled book, and talk to Ma about her outburst, 
or I could follow Zoe into the living room to try to comfort her and ask her how she felt about Graham. Was she afraid? I turned and started toward the dining room, only to bump into Zoe, who was heading back to the living room. Zoe, who was not a judgmental preteen, but an enthusiastic, open-hearted toddler who lived in the moment. She padded past me, holding a big plastic box, and asked matter-of-factly, Want to play Legos, Graham? <laughs> ah, the wonder of toddlerhood. <laughs> yeah. It's <funny> <laughs> such a, such <laughs> a lovely moment. It's, yeah. it's, it's all gone from, for both of them the next minute. <laughs> we, and that's the beauty. Like, they were crossing. They were at an intersection where Zoe was coming up to the point that Ma was descending to, you know. So they were yes. actually sometimes perfect for each other. <laughs> Um, Perfect playmates. Yeah, yeah, oh. and you know that forgivingness of the of the toddler, of a gentle toddler, you know, up against my um, pain and resistance uh, was really poignant. Um, and what's touching to me now is that, in fact, um, it was my thirteen year old, my younger daughter Cleo, who was very young at the time. Um, she was the one to suggest this passage. She read my book recently, and she told me that she was particularly struck by this, that the, the forgivingness of the, of the little toddler, Zoe. I thought that was sweet. Oh, that's one. Yeah, it's more than sweet. There's just so much heart in it, isn't there? Yeah. yeah. And she's now at the developmental point to, to see that in a different way. Absolutely, uh, and she's now starting to work with young kids herself. They both are, actually. So that's fun. Amazing. You know, I, f- I feel as if you, you um, captured that experience of preparing for long decline mm-hmm. so well. And then, of course, there was such a shock when your mother died. Yeah. Uh, for, for me. Can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, I mean, I think it was especially shocking given the picture you had of what was going to go- going to happen. <laughs> Absolutely. It's so funny because, I mean, we were just talking about planning um, versus not worrying. And I was so full of plans. And you know the thing they say about make a plan and watch God laugh, you know, or hear uh-huh. God laugh. <laughs> it's this, you know, I had I had gone out and looked at all these um, care facilities, and I was thinking about when to put her in a home, um, and I, I was really struggling with that because she absolutely loved her home in Martinez. This, you know, she had a life there, and I knew that she was becoming unsafe living alone. So we had this day when we went back to the Alzheimer's Center, the um, UC Davis Alzheimer's Center in Martinez for testing. And she came out of the tests, and they said to me, okay, it's come to that point. You do have to put her in a care facility because she is not safe to be by herself. Um, and that day, I took her to uh, lunch, and she was behaving a little, you know, she was very, very exhausted by the whole experience, and I think pretty devastated by the news. Um, and she was burping and chewing funny, just off. So we both thought she had the flu. Mm-hmm. Um, and I took her back to her house, 
Um, and, you know, she went into her house, and then I, I called her later to check on her, and she didn't answer. So, um, so I, I worried all afternoon, and when she still wasn't answering in the evening, I went over to her house, and there she was, dead on the floor. And that apparently had died quite suddenly. Mm. So, um, yeah, I was shocked, you know. I, I wasn't prepared. I wasn't prepared. I wasn't prepared for her to die a long, slow death, and I also wasn't prepared for her to die this sudden, earlier death that, that actually occurred. I guess she just never prepared. Never prepared, but I do think... Um you know, my my father died after a fall very suddenly. Yeah. And I was very aware that I had a picture in my head of um, care, caring for him in his decline mm-hmm. and that there was a part of me uh, strangely looking forward to that mm. uh, because that had been such an intimate experience with my wife. Uh-huh. So... So one of the losses I experienced was the loss of my picture. Right, yeah. <laughs> you know? Interesting. The um, loss of, of the narrative that we create. Exactly. And I, and I felt that same kind of vertigo when I read that part of your book. That yeah. although you were certainly not looking forward to, and nor could you ever prepare, you did have a picture yeah. of what you thought was going to happen. Absolutely, I think and it was, and that. it was absolutely not that way. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's always, always the case that when we anticipate something, or you know, have an expectation, we we do set ourselves up that way. You know? Yes, <laughs> and and yet it's unavoidable. That's what that's what brains do, don't they? <laughs> you know, they sort of make pictures. Well, when we come back, I'd like to uh, talk about, you know, after. Um, Grief, yes, and also how you look at all those experiences from your vantage point now, how they affected you, how they impacted you as a person. Um, So, listeners... You can go to my page, of course, my website, or my host page at, at Voice America. And you can also go see more about Sybil and her wonderful book, Mother in the Middle, at SybilLockhart.com. Be back soon. Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. 
We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. My guest today is Sybil Lockhart, who's experienced caring for her mother after an Alzheimer's diagnosis while raising her very young daughters became the book Mother in the Middle. You know, I thought you captured early grief perfectly in that paragraph in the book about the few weeks after her death. Could we start this segment with that part of the book? Sure. For the next three weeks, I felt like I was walking around in a world that belonged to everyone else but me. Other people understood and functioned and communicated while I dwelled in a separate compartment, underwater, isolated from other humans. Watching people fill their carts at the supermarket, I couldn't understand why they had to buy so many things. Things were just things. Pat's silly humor, which had never failed to make me laugh, now made no sense at all. And I just stared at him, trying to muster even a feeble smile. I knew it must be funny. I just didn't speak funny anymore. Mm. No one else seemed to feel the immensity of Ma's absence. And that made me feel somehow invisible. At night, as I carried the recycling bins out to the curb, I looked up at the dark sky and found familiar patterns, the Big Dipper and Orion, and my heart stung with the familiarity of it. You could always find those stars, even on a brightly moonlit night, even mid-city, but you couldn't find my mom. I really love that, that sense of of absolute absence that you feel at that point and not understanding how the world can just go on. That's right. It turns, it turns things upside down in a way that was unexpected. And in fact, reading this passage, when you asked me to read this passage, I was surprised. Like, I had actually forgotten that feeling, not completely, like, oh, yeah, that's right. It was so... Mm. Weird. It was otherworldly. It was as if the world wasn't real because the world couldn't be real without her in it, you know? Yes. And the other thing that I realized after she died, and this is particular to um, dealing with someone who, who diminishes gradually before they die as opposed to a sudden death, is that I had been feeling like I was losing her. I had been complaining about it and noticing it and feeling like, oh, she's not the person she used to be. And in fact, there's a part of me that was feeling like she's already dead to me. Mm -hmm. But when she died, I suddenly got it. What a huge difference there is between, 
you know, diminished and gone. It's just, it's bigger than you could possibly imagine, you know? Yes, <laughs> yes. It's a different experience, but my wife declined tremendously right. in the last part of her, her life. And and yet death matters, doesn't it? Yes, it still matters a lot. Yeah, there's the, the, the touching someone who is in their body. Right even without their brain being all there, right. is so different than trying to touch right. them in you. Right. Uh, just t- totally different experience, yeah? Yeah, exactly. Did you, did you feel, uh, you know, I've grieved with young children <laughs> because mm-hmm. my kids were young at the time, mm. and um, that's a particular kind of experience. Did you feel like you got enough space for your grief? Um, yeah, I do. I do feel like I did. I don't, I don't really remember whether at the time I I did, but I think I did. Looking back on it, it feels as if you got or were given or made enough space for it. I mean, I think part of that is that I wasn't, I, I wasn't working full time and having Ma gone actually opened up time and space for me. Um, Zoe was in school. Cleo was young, so I think I did actually, and I and I had my writing group, just people to process with, um, and so I think I was fortunate in that uh, regard. Well, when I asked you that, I also suddenly flashed on the part of the book about the time you spent in your mother's house. Right, yeah. And that you couldn't really make that process go faster. Yeah. And if I remember right, it took about a year. To sell that house, to go through all this stuff and to and to get myself ready to to let go of it. Yeah, because it was the house I grew up in. Um, so it had you, not just my mother's being in it and and my and it also had my father's who also had passed away when I was in my 20s, and then, you know, and then mine and my sister. So there was a lot there. And also, I don't, I don't know, what I recall from that year after my wife died was that physical space had a, I, I think physical space is always somewhat metaphoric, but it had a really big metaphoric impact on me. Uh, when I would put something away or give it away or uh, throw it away, um, when I dealt with her things in, in the house, it was part of that grief process. And I kind of felt that in the book. Yeah. When, uh, that, it, that it was a conduit in a way. Yeah, Do you think? definitely, definitely. Going, going through those belongings. And I, I think I... I wrote a scene that it's still really unlike the rest of the book. This one scene very is very strong in my memory because it was a physical leaving of personal belongings that finally I came to the point where I realized I can't handle this. And the woman I used to babysit for up the street had um, was still in the neighborhood and she'd become an estate sales person. That's what she was doing in her retirement or Mm-hmm. So I ran into her and she said, why don't you let us do it, um, us being her and her husband. So they took over 
And, you know, I had removed everything precious to me and left all the things I couldn't handle dealing with. They, and, they, and they sold it. And I, I remember standing in, in the front yard and the doors of the house being wide open, all these people streaming in and out, one by one, the objects that represented our family and our life together, literally walking away. You know, mm. walking out. It was kind of, if you look at it physically, what was happening, these objects going away from the house, it was almost like ants taking apart a carcass and taking the pieces of the, of the, whatever the dead beast is away in, mm. in a little line or, or maybe just molecules detaching from a, a decaying something. You know, it had that feeling of what happens when, when something dies. Um, not in an ugly way, not in a not mm-hmm. in a distressing way exactly, but just in a oh you know a, a decomposition. It was a decomposition of our of our exi- of our physical existence. So then, so then you know how do I hold hold us in my mind? I think you were touching on that. You know then then it's up to us. It's up to our feeble memories. You know to to maintain a connection with that which is I think what I was doing by writing this book was you know sort of ensuring that there would be something that I could hold on to and one because um, there there's a way that they're also carrying off the carcass for nourishment mm-hmm. that 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 other beings in other places are somehow going to be nourished. Right, right, yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and that, that's kind of an, uh, a nice thing to think about in my, in my own head right this minute. <laughs> you know, that, that you kind of sent them, sent them all out to where they would be alive for other people. Yes, yes. Definitely, I like that. <laughs> this is what we were talking about uh, during the break, that you have an, like a literary appreciation for things. You can <laughs> continue the metaphor for me. <laughs> yeah, I, kind of, I kind of do think that way some, sometimes. So it's been some time now. When did your mother die? In 2003. Uh, in 2003, so 11 years ago. When you look back... Do you have thoughts about what's different in your life? I mean, there's some obvious things that are that changed while you were going through that. For instance, you stopped teaching at Cal and you and you started writing f- with the thought of an audience, all those kinds of things. Um, and maybe there are others I don't know about. Mm-hmm. But what about inside of you too? Well, inside of me, yeah. I mean, there's something very profound about when you lose a second parent. Um, no matter how dependent she was on me um, <clears throat> in reality, you know, how, no matter how independent I had become with my life, with my husband, my job, I was fine, right? But when I lost her, it has a, it has a feeling of that's the last bit of, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the last bit of support is gone from mm. from that family of origin. You know, the, the old thinking of your parents are going to take care of you, so you're going to be okay. So you have to step into life in a different way, and I think that is the most profound change is that 
it you just I just became a grown up then. I had mm. to. I had you know, I had to become a grown up. <laughs> in a different <laughs> in a different way. Because uh-huh. there were uh-huh. no grown ups left um that I could look to and say those are the grown ups. I was it. And so it's that's the mental shift, I think. It's a owning it, my own life kind of thing. It it Reminds me of something I've heard people say, when my parents died, there was no buffer. I was the last generation. Mm-hmm. I was the generation up against death, mm-hmm. really, you know, and right. you here to live own, my life. And, right. Your own mortality comes rushing towards you at that point. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. The other thing that is really true, and this had begun to happen even before my mother died, is, is a connection to my sister, Alice. Um, who's two years older and was in Seattle during this whole thing. Um, she, she and I have really connected, and I think that's a natural thing when the, when the parents are gone for the siblings to realize, oh, you know, you're my one connection to that time. You're the only person who truly understands my relationship to my parents, um, and you're here. You're still here on Earth and sort of a, a profound uh, recognition of the value of my sister, no matter how different we might be, that she's there and she's, she connects me to who I am. Well, I, I wonder if maybe even partly because of being different but sharing the experience, mm-hmm. because yeah. that means you have two different angles on the experience, right. don't you? And Yours and hers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. And again, she remembers things differently from how I remember them. She remembers a different angle, a different perspective, and sometimes completely different set of facts. So <laughs> mm-hmm. that's valuable, too. For sure. We're we're coming down to the last few minutes. Sadly, I'm really enjoying speaking with you. But I wonder if there's... If you... Uh, if someone said, what's the most important thing to carry with you when you're taking care of someone who is struggling with Alzheimer's or the other similar um, diseases where people decline in memory that way. Does something come to your mind? What what was most important for you to hold on to? Um, I guess there's a couple of things come to mind. One is, one is no, matter, no matter how many times you're told, I found, I found it very hard to do is, um, you know, get get support, get someone to talk to. For me, it turned out to be my writing group, but that was just fortuitous. I, I never did go to those grief, grief groups or um, you know, caregivers groups, but I think it would be great. The second is, uh, and this is going to sound silly, but it is not, drink lots of water. Huh, the that is not silly. I know what you're saying. <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah, we forget the, the very most basic things when we're involved in taking care of someone else. And it's so essential and so easy to do. Um, and that's a, a huge piece of, you know, I don't know. It's so, it's so little and so big at the same time. Well, um, I, you know, that's, uh, I just wrote, a, wrote in my newsletter about caregiving, and it was about how you have to take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. Or you can't do it. <laughs> you fall apart. 
So I think that stands in for that whole concept. I want to thank you so much for being with me today. I really enjoyed talking about the book and about your mother and your kids and that whole experience. And listeners, don't forget to go to SybilLockhart.com to um, find out more about the book and and about my guest. Next week, I'll welcome David Takaro, a musician whose life changed completely after a leukemia diagnosis. His experience is the subject of a book, Bad to the Bone. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.